Hello everyone, welcome to Langstaff Assembly Podcast. My name is Yanaili Joyce and I'm your host for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you and that it draws you near to God. I'm going to share, uh, what I'm going to share with everyone today is something that is really it's not confusing, but it goes through a number of different parts. And so I'm going to try and explain it the best that I can. And hopefully, uh, hopefully it makes sense. But it was actually something that I was worshiping about um, a few weeks ago. And I read this parable and I was actually reading through it with Yanaili and I'd skipped over it every other time that I read it. But then a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago, it really stuck out to me. And so I'm going to read that. It's in Mark chapter four. And verse 26. <clears throat> and just so everyone knows, I'm really excited about this. This is actually something that God has shown me, and I'm going to explain it exactly how He showed it to me. And hopefully, that can lead us to worship and encourage us. And so, Mark chapter 4 and verse 26, Jesus is talking, and Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crop on its own. First, a leaf blade pushes through. Then the heads of wheat are formed. And finally, the grain ripens. As soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with the sickle, for the harvest time has come. The one verse that really stuck out to me in this parable that Jesus is talking about is verse 27. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. And so my main point, the one thing that I want everyone to get across, is that God is always working. Just like this seed underneath the ground, God is always working beneath the surface. And a lot of the times, just like that farmer doesn't understand how that seed is growing, he he scatters the seed and it grows underneath the ground. It grows deep down with roots and it grows up and he doesn't understand how it happens. A lot of the times it's the same thing in our lives because God is working beneath the surface or God is working um, behind the scenes and we might not understand how it happens, but one thing is for sure, God is always working. And that got me thinking, it's so easy when we're looking back on situations, it's so easy to articulate certain things and it's so easy to see things clearly from hindsight, right? We can look back on situations in our lives and we're like, oh, that makes sense. But then when we're in the middle of the situations, it's so much harder to understand and we get so caught up in the, in the day-to-day and in the things that are happening. Um, A couple months ago, before I got married, I picked out these amazing chairs right here, right? And really nice fabric chairs. I love them. Fast forward a couple months, we end up buying a cat. In the the moment, it seemed like a really good idea to get these fabric chairs because they're comfortable, they're nice, they look nice. But who knew that the cat's favorite activity would be to run and jump up and cling herself to the back of the chairs. And with each claw, I'm just regretting buying those chairs. And so that's a silly example, but like in the moment, it seemed like a good idea. But then looking back on the situation, it's like, oh, well, like, I should have known that. Or like planning our wedding. Well, 
I didn't really, I wasn't a huge part of that, but Yanely planning the wedding, like we found a venue, we spent tons of time, we basically planned the wedding. And then a month or two months before it happened, uh, due to the coronavirus and everything, the rug was pulled out from under us and we didn't have a venue and we had to plan a whole new wedding. And so it's like all that time and that energy went into something, but then it ended up that we didn't even need to put our time and energy into that because that wouldn't even be good for anything. And so then we had to do a whole new thing, right? And so it's like, when you're looking back on a situation from hindsight, it's so easy to articulate and to see things uh, clearly. But when you're in the situation, it's difficult. And I think a lot of times it's just like that in our spiritual lives, because we get so caught up in the day to day, we get so caught up in the next five, in, in like the day to day or the next year or the next five years or the next 10 years, when God's actually looking at the next 10 billion years, and we seem to forget that God isn't in time like we are. God is actually outside of time. And there's a Casting Crown song that I really enjoy that describes this well. And he says, like, God is already there. He's already at the end. And one day we're going to be there looking back with him. And we're going to see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And it's going to be absolutely incredible and it's going to blow our minds. And so what I want to do today is I want to encourage people and I want to help us to maybe change our perspective a little. Because if we can see what God's doing and if we can get on board with that, then it's like our faith will grow and we'll grow closer to him and he'll be able to use us. But if we're just so caught up in the in the next in the day to day, then I feel like we might miss out a little bit. And so after reading this parable about the seed being uh, going in the ground, a few days later, I was reading, um, no, I wasn't reading. A few days later, a notification popped up on my phone and the verse of the day was found in Isaiah chapter 43. So if we could turn to Isaiah chapter 43. <clears throat> so first, we have the farmer scattering the seed. We have the seed going in the ground. And that seed is like the kingdom of God working beneath the surface, right? And if we can keep that in mind throughout the whole message, that seed is God working beneath the surface that we might not understand. And so just so we have a little bit of an understanding where we are in Isaiah chapter 43, the book is kind of split up into two. And so you have the chapter 1 to 39. And... The whole book is basically a message of judgment for the people of Israel. They were, um, God had showed his faithfulness to them. God had showed his love to them and poured out his uh, grace upon grace to them. And in chapter one, it's basically called in, in the whole like first part, he's calling out all of the leaders of Israel. And he's basically saying like in the, in chapter one, he compares the nation of Israel to an ox or a donkey who doesn't know its master. He compares them to corrupt children. He compares them to, he says their heads are injured and their hearts are sick. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, the two most wicked cities that have ever existed. He compares them to, uh, he says, I don't want your false, your false worship or your empty sacrifices, your meaningless gifts. God is sick and he's tired and he's frustrated at their disobedience. And they, they throw big celebrations to pretend to worship God, but then their hearts are so far from God and God is so frustrated. And so the first 39 chapters are like a message of warning about the judgment. But then from 40 
to uh, chapter 66 or to the end of the book, it almost seems as if um, it's written in a different literary style. And a lot of scholars say that it could be Isaiah writing into the future and they open it up later, or it could be his disciples. Either way, the audience of this book in Isaiah chapter 43, they're the children of Israel and they've been in exile. So all they've known is captivity. They, maybe they've heard stories about God's faithfulness before. Maybe they've heard about, they heard about um, how God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and how he saved them and how he rescued them and how he gave them water in the desert and how he gave them, um, he gave them food in the desert and he provided for their every need. But these people, they, maybe they've never, they've never experienced that in their life. And so Isaiah is writing to them and let's just jump in here. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 19. This is what he says. For I'm about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. The wild animals in the fields will thank me, the jackals and the owls too, for giving them water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. And the one thing that stuck out to me when I saw this verse was it kind of reminded me of the, the verse in Mark. He says the seed goes into the ground and the farmer doesn't understand how it's growing. And here, God is seemingly working behind the scenes. And he says, I'm about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? And so he's almost challenging the readers. He's like, don't you see what God's doing? And then as I was reading this, what came into my head was the children of Israel are in exile. And so my mind went to another story where the children of Israel were also in exile. And so if we could all go to the book of Esther, Esther chapter one. This is actually a couple hundred years later, the children of Israel had been in and out of exile, uh, whether it was Babylon or the Assyrians or the Persian empire. They were in and out of exile for basically from that point up until the time that the Lord Jesus came. And the reason why I thought of the story of Esther is because it's a perfect example of the seed. Because the whole story, you have God working behind the scenes. The whole story, you have God moving different pieces of the puzzle around. And, and in the moment, people don't understand what's happening. But then at the end, you're like, oh, wow. Looking back in hindsight, you're like, that's what God was doing. And then it's just like absolutely incredible. And so I'm not going to read the whole story, but if you don't know it, it's really, really interesting, but I'm going to go through a little bit of it. And so just as an intro, so we can be, uh, so we can know who the characters are more or less. It starts off chapter one, verse 10. I'm actually going to go be going through it in the NLT because I find it uh, easier to understand. And so it says on the seventh day of the feast, when the king, Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. He told seven eunuchs who attended him, and then he lists off all their names, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to the Queen Vashti, she refused to come. 
and this made the king furious and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew the Persian laws and their customs for he asked their advice. And then he goes down and, and so we're introduced to the king. In this scene, he's drunk and, and he, wants his, he wants his wife to come out and do something and then she refuses. And because of that, he gets so angry that what he actually ends up doing is he ends up banishing her. And so we go from this scene, from the queen being banished, if we jump into chapter two, we can look at chapter two, uh, verse five. At that time, there was a Jewish man at the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Er. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who with King Joachim of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. So these people were in captivity, the children of Israel in captivity, exiled in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so now we're introduced to this guy named Mordecai. Keep him in mind, he's a really important character. So we have the king who's a drunk, we have Mordecai, and now verse seven, this man had a very beautiful daughter or a very beautiful and lovely young cousin who was called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Jump down to verse 16. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. And he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So here, the drunk king banishes his wife He's looking for a new wife, and we can kind of see what God's doing. God literally lifts a peasant, or maybe she's not completely at the peasant level, but God lifts this lowly woman up to be the most important woman in the whole nation. He lifts her up from where she was to being the queen. And so that's one way we can see God working. Another way, uh, in chapter three, we're introduced to Haman, and Haman's the villain of the story, and Haman gets in a fight with Mordecai and um, basically Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. And then Haman makes a plan to kill all of the Jews in the whole nation. So Haman responds in anger and he makes a plan to, to go through with this genocide and he gets the king's approval and he kind of tricks the king into, into making a decree or into signing something. And all of the Jews, in the whole nation of, of Persia at the time, were in danger because they were going to be wiped out. But then if we look at chapter 6, verse 1, this is God working behind the scenes just like the seed, and it's absolutely incredible. So the next day, Haman was going to kill Mordecai, right? He was about to die. But that night, chapter 6, verse 1, that night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of history of his reign so it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered, in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the two of the eunuchs who guarded the king's door in his private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. And so basically what happened was God put Mordecai in just the right spot at just the right time to save the king's life. A whole pile of time goes by and then 
the night before or the night before Mordecai was going to die, the king is randomly having trouble sleeping. And then God orchestrates something amazing where his, the king's servant is in there reading him the history of what happened. And so Mordecai in the morning was going to die. But then suddenly the king has trouble sleeping and this is read to him. Oh, Mordecai saved my life. And then he thinks, what should I do? To help, what should I do to help Mordecai? And so if we continue reading in chapter, verse four or verse three, he says, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king asked. His attendant replied, nothing has been done for him. And so now what we have is kind of a pivot in the story. Because up till this point, Mordecai was going to die. The Jews were going to die. Esther was in a very dangerous spot being the queen. And we don't really understand what's going on, right? But then jumping in here, we can see it's really interesting. So the king says, who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman, the villain, just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole that he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is in the court. Bring him in, Haman ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, hmm, who would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman comes in the room and Haman thinks, oh, I've been doing a good job. The king wants to honor me. This is my time, right? And so then Haman replies here in verse uh Haman replies here in verse seven. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden with the royal emblem on his head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, uh, to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man who the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse, have the official shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robe and take my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. And so that very second, Haman was about to come in and about to ask the king to kill Mordecai, but then God switches everything up and now Haman has to honor Mordecai and literally parade him through town and then lift him up in honor. And so first we have God putting Esther in the right spot. Then we have God putting Mordecai in the spot to save the king's life. Then we have God having the king having difficulty sleeping. And then the servant ends up reading the one thing that would save the king's or save Mordecai's life. And then as we go down, uh, due to time, I'm not going to read the, the whole rest of the story, but God actually gives Esther the courage to stand up to the king. And that was something that was incredibly brave because um, she was basically going against the second most powerful man in the nation. And it could have gone either way, and she was risking her life, but God gave her the courage to do it, and she stood up, and she ended up saving the, saving the nation of the, the Jews. And the king actually saved their life. And so not only did God give her the courage to do that, but God actually gave the king the courage to admit that he was wrong. And that's actually something that's kind of blown my mind recently because like a king of a whole empire and he was willing to go back and realize, oh, 
this is wrong. Like that takes, that takes a work of God and God was obviously working. And the king goes back on his decree and he gives the Jews a way to, uh, a way to save themselves. And it's amazing. But I just want us to remember that it's just like that little seed. This whole story is like that little seed. It's like that seed that's in the ground and the farmer doesn't understand how it grows, but it grows. And it ends up in this story, God working beneath the surface in everything without his name even being mentioned. And then the children of Israel being saved. So now we've gone from Mark to Isaiah to Esther. And we've seen the seed grow, right? Now what I want us to do is we're going to go from, we're going to go back to Mark and then we're going to go back to Isaiah and then we're going to be done just so everyone kind of understands where we are and isn't confused. So if we can go back to Mark, Mark chapter four, the same place that we were reading, Mark chapter four and verse 30. Jesus is going to go on and he's going to tell another parable. So Mark chapter four and verse 30, Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make their nest in its shade. So not only is the kingdom of God like that little seed that goes into the ground and grows without the farmer knowing, but now the kingdom of God is like the smallest little seed that grows into the biggest plant. And I'm sure at this point, the disciples really didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. But if we go back 500 years, let's go back to Isaiah. You don't actually have to turn there. Sorry, it's a lot of back and forth. But if we go back to Isaiah chapter six, then we read something really, really, really amazing. Isaiah chapter six, verse 13. And so he says, Isaiah is talking and he's talking about the children of Israel. And he says, even if a tenth, a remnant survive. So he's talking about the people he's saying even if a tenth of the people survive they will be invaded again and burned and so they're going to go through a terrible time they're going to be exiled even if a tenth the remnant survive it will be invaded again and burned but as a terebinth or an oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down so israel's stump will be a holy seed and so this is the most important part i want everyone to understand this Isaiah is comparing the nation of Israel to a tree. And he says that great tree will be cut down and burned. But then from that stump, a holy seed will grow. And so now we're, it's like looking back, you can see Jesus talking, and then you can see the prophet Isaiah talking. And then you can see Jesus talking about the seed, and you can see the prophet Isaiah talking. And it's like the same, it's like the same seed. And so here we read that the nation of Israel will be cut down and burned, but then from that stump will grow a holy seed. And then I thought about it and it actually blew my mind because the parable Jesus was telling was written like 500 years earlier because in Isaiah chapter 53 verse two, we read that Jesus was actually that seed. Jesus was the smallest seed that would grow from the stump of Israel to be the biggest blessing to actually save the whole world. We read in Isaiah 53, verse 2, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. 
And so here we have Jesus being that same seed that would grow. And no one had any idea what was happening. This is all beneath the surface. And so we can tie it in with the first two parables in Mark. It's like, it's like the farmer who plants the seed and it grows underneath the surface. No one had any idea what God was doing here. It's like the smallest seed that grows into the biggest of houseplants. God is using something terrible and he's bringing about something amazing. And they had no idea what was happening. And if anyone here doesn't know Jesus as their savior, if anyone here doesn't actually have a personal relationship with Jesus, this is what the whole message of the Bible is. God actually uses Jesus, his son, and he brings forth salvation for everyone. And you may wonder how that happens, but it's written here in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus actually came down and he took our sins in his own body on the cross. It says he was, yet he was our, it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought that his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And then he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord, God laid on him, Jesus, the sin of us all. And so that is the reason why we can be here. That is the reason why we can worship. It's because even though we went away from God, even though we were doing our own things, even though we were so caught up in sin, God had actually formed a plan hundreds and hundreds of years before anyone was even thinking about it. God had formed a plan, just like that seed underneath the ground, to bring forth our salvation. And so I hope everyone is kind of a little bit blown away by that. I was blown away by that when, when God showed that to me. And I thought it was really interesting how he could use that little seed stretched across five, like hundreds and hundreds of years for us to be able to appreciate now. And I hope that leads us in, in greater worship to him. But what does that mean for us now? We've learned about the seed. We've looked at it throughout the whole Bible. But what does that actually mean for us? One, God is working. And so even in our day today, even though it may not seem like it, even though we might be struggling with certain things, even though we might not understand how it happens or what he's doing, one thing is certain, God is always working. And I want us to be encouraged by that. Number two, I want us to change our perspective a little bit. Because we might be thinking about the day-to-day -day and we might miss out on what God is doing on a large scale. But the beauty of Christianity is that God actually calls us not to just save us blindly, but he calls us and he wants to join into a partnership with us. He actually brings us up to his, he actually brings us up and wants to work with us. And so if we can be aware, if we can see what God is doing, then like we've just been studying in 2 Timothy, like a soldier fights like a farmer works and plants like an athlete trains and 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 runs like that's what the christian life is soldier farmer athlete it's it's god wants to work with us and the more we're able to see and the more we pursue him and seek his face he will show that to us and we'll be in that partnership with him and that's what god wants and so one god is always working and two god wants us to work with him
So let's all um, let's all pursue him. Let's all pursue seek his face to see what he has to say to us. Uh, that's what I've been appreciating, and I hope that um, it's a blessing for your life as well. Hey, thank you so much for listening. What a privilege it was to share God's word with you today. We pray that you were fed, strengthened, and more equipped to run the race with perseverance. To listen to more podcasts like this, make sure to subscribe. For more content from Langstaff and to connect with us, go to langstaffassembly.com. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time.